Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. Exodus chapter 12, starting at verse 43, going through to chapter 13, verse 10. All right, starting at 43. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, these are the regulations for the Passover meal. No foreigner may eat it. Any slave you have bought may eat it after you have circumcised him, but a temporary resident or a hired worker may not eat it. It must be eaten inside the house. Take none of the meat outside of the house. Do not break any of the bones. The whole community of Israel must celebrate it. A foreigner residing among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised. Then he may take part like one born in the land. No uncircumcised male may eat it. The same law applies both to the native born and to the foreigner residing among you. All the Israelites did just what the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. Then Moses said to the people, commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. Today in the month of Aviv you are leaving. When the Lord brings you into the land of Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites and Jebusites, the land he swore to your ancestors to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, You are to observe this ceremony in this month. For seven days, eat bread without yeast, and on the seventh day, hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. On that day, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that this law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. You must keep this ordinance at the appointed time year after year. Our New Testament reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 17, verses 17 to 34. Starting at verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this manner. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread of drinks, the cup of the Lord, in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. Thanks, Adele. Uh, I'm just going to move this. I'm not a coffee guy, and I'm not an AFL guy, and I'm not a lectern guy either. Um, Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for your holy word that teaches us how to live well and uh, shows us salvation in Jesus and life in Jesus. And we pray now that as we dwell on your word, you'd by your spirit work in us to make us the people you want us to be for his glory. Amen. So uh, the passage we read is thinking about Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper, uh, the Eucharist. Different churches call it different things. And it's great for us to think about uh, the Lord's Supper uh, and what it means and how to do it. It seems to be important in the scriptures. Um, A bad way to learn about the Lord's Supper is to look at what lots of churches do uh, and try and interpret it without having some input from the scriptures because you'll get very different pictures. You'll go to some churches where the supper is so formal, so high, so much ceremony and ritual, and where the priest, so-called, will wear special robes and there'll be special words and special actions, and you'll think, wow, this is a really big ceremony and ritual. And you go to other churches where it's completely casual, and it's like, oh, you just grab a bit of bread, grab a bit of wine, it's, that's fine. And then even some churches, it'll be, well, you have to come up the front to take the bread and the wine. Others, it'll be over at the side. Some, it'll be individual cups. Some, it'll be a common cup. Uh, some, it will be that only certain people can distribute it. Others, it will be, no, help yourself. It, there's all kinds of different things that happen in different churches. And you think, well, well, what should we be doing and what does it mean? When you read the Bible and particularly the passage that we read, just heard read now, Uh, What you'll see is, in the scriptures, there's a great concern that we get it right. But getting it right does not mean anything to do with the ritual. doesn't mean anything to do with the clothes you wear or whether you come up to the front or go to the side or little cups or big cups. That's not really what getting it right means. Getting it right means something quite different. It's very important to get it right. And what it means, particularly in the context of 1 Corinthians, is getting it right as a body of fellowship of believers, as sisters and brothers sharing this supper together. That's critical. How we do it 
is critical not in the details and particularities of our rituals, but in how we relate to one another as we share the bread and the wine, the supper of the Lord. Now, before we can dive right into our passage, there's just a couple of things that are worth us knowing to sort of clear the decks and help us understand uh, what we presume the Corinthians understood and the, what Paul was speaking into. A couple of things we need to know is that church and sharing in the Lord's Supper was very different in New Testament times. Uh, most churches were actually house churches there. So most churches were not uh, like this, come to a different building that's kind of set aside for the purpose, but were house churches, the same place where you sat with your family day in, day out and had your regular meals. People would join other households for church. Uh, and Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper, would be included as part of the meal that happened as part of the people gathering in the house for church. A little bit like if you had a Bible study at your house and had communion, uh, had Lord's Supper as part of the Bible study. I should just say as a sidebar here, I don't think Bible studies in people's houses are mini churches. I think that's a mistake. But if you go back to the first century, the type of house church they did then, uh, that was a church in the proper sense. And so if you imagine that kind of setting and, and having Holy Communion in that sort of gathering, that's the picture that we need to have as we come to 1 Corinthians 11. The other thing we need to just understand is, before we can see why Paul is upset at what the Corinthians are getting wrong, we need to understand what the Holy Communion was meant to be. What's it all about? Now, I've got a picture on the screen that's hopelessly too small and detailed for you. Don't worry about it. it uh, you can, if you're desperate for it, I'm sure you can get the picture emailed to you. But I can tell you enough for us to understand what's going on uh, in Paul's critique of the Corinthians. You need to understand this. The Lord's Supper that we share in our churches today is modelled on the Last Supper that Jesus shared with his disciples in that upper room in Jerusalem just before he died on the cross for the sins of the world. The Lord's Supper is a replay of something to do with the, uh, sorry, the, la the Lord's Supper is something to do as a replay of the Last Supper. But the Last Supper that Jesus had with his disciples in that upper room in Jerusalem was actually a Passover meal which was an Old Testament ritual. So there's the Passover meal, the Old Testament ritual, which Jesus did with his disciples as the Last Supper and which we now reenact as the Lord's Supper. But let me make it even more complicated for you. The Passover meal remembered back in the history of Israel, the Passover. This is the biggest event in the story of the Old Testament people of God, the Passover. What happened in the Passover very quickly? Well, the Passover was the time when God freed his people from slavery in Egypt. You know the story, right? The Ten Commandments, the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, uh, Moses leading the people out, God in a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. That salvation from captivity in Egypt is all remembered in this special ritual, the Passover meal. A bit like we remember the birth of Jesus in our Christmas times and we remember the death and resurrection of Jesus at Easter, they remembered the exodus 
out of Egypt in the Passover. And what happened in that Passover? Well, the last plague that God sent on the people of Egypt was a plague that would see all the firstborn in the land of Egypt killed as a punishment for the people of Egypt having oppressed God's firstborn, the children of Israel. But the way that the firstborn of God's people would be protected would be by marking their houses to say, this is the house of God's people, so the angel of death would know not to come there. How did they mark the house? They took a lamb, they slaughtered it, and they put its blood around the door. So when the angel of death came, the angel saw the blood on the door and passed over that house, letting the plague only land on the houses of the people who weren't God's people. They slaughtered this lamb, an unblemished lamb, a pure lamb. They marked the doorpost. They signaled to the angel of the Lord, pass over this house. They also took bread without any yeast and they had it as a meal actually to commemorate this event. Why no yeast? There's actually two reasons. One is they took this unleavened bread, this unyeasted bread, because it's quick to make. Any of you who are bakers or aspiring pizza makers like me know that you need to put yeast in the bread, in the dough, and give it time to prove and rise and do all that business. But if you are about to escape from a land of oppression, you don't have time to let it prove and rise and all that business. So you make an unleavened bread, a bread that you can roll, bake, and eat straight away. But there's a second reason. And the second reason they ate unleavened bread at this Passover meal was because leaven or yeast actually is something of a symbol for impurity. Something for a symbol of impurity. Again, I'm gonna draw on your knowledge of baking. If anyone makes sourdough bread, uh, you know that you can take a pinch of your old sourdough and start up a new batch of dough. And then you use that and you keep this pinch of dough alive and you don't need to add yeast because there's yeast in the old one that you keep transferring forward. Uh, and this is the way you can have this uh, bread dough that lasts you for ages by just keeping the same yeast. But it can go rancid. It can go off. And so what you do uh, once in a while is you reset and you start afresh. That is, yeast is seen as something of a potential contaminant. Uh, and certainly Jesus picks this up a lot, doesn't he, in his teaching. He talks about the yeast of the Pharisees and this contaminant that spreads through people. So they would have bread that had no impurity in it. It was quick to make and it had no chance of, of going rancid. It was pure bread. It was clean bread. It was unblemished bread like unblemished lamb. So this was what they did in the Passover. They had this meal, the lamb that they ate and the lamb's blood was on the doorpost, the, yeast that were, the bread with no yeast so it was pure and you could eat it in flight. Then when Jesus ate with his disciples the last supper, the ritual had grown up in Old Testament times that we eat lamb and we eat bread to remember that first Passover. But when Jesus ate it with his disciples at the last supper, he helped them understand it anew and say something different is now going on and the story changes tonight. The story changes tonight. That Passover 
that flight out of Egypt, that escape from slavery, that was a salvation of God, but it was really only a foretaste of the true salvation of God. And these symbols of blood and bread, they're good symbols, but we're gonna take them and now understand them as the true symbols of salvation. There is gonna be a lamb slain to protect you from the judgment of God, but it's not gonna be a lamb. It's gonna be me, Jesus, the Messiah. The Lamb of God will now be slain. You will eat pure bread, but it's not gonna be bread that's baked in an oven. It's gonna be my body, the pure bread that will sustain you and nourish you as you journey forward as my people. So now the wine that was drunk at the Passover meal symbolizes, according to Jesus, his blood. We're no longer having the, the lamb slaughtered to remember the lamb's blood. We're drinking the wine to remember the lamb's blood. But now the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, not the lamb that was the Passover lamb. And now we're eating this bread to emphasize, to remember that we are sustained, we are kept alive by the one whose pure body was given to us and we receive that purity into ourselves. This Passover meal has been freshly reinterpreted by Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, rising to new life. We have freedom, not from slavery and captivity, bad as that is, freedom from sin. Freedom from sin is now represented here. And we ought to remember these things and celebrate them. So when we have the bread and wine, that's what we're doing. We're having the blood of Jesus, the body of Jesus, symbolically given for us so that God's judgment passes over, so that we're made pure and that we can live for him and with him and by him forever. So all of this is the background and then Paul comes to the Corinthian church in his letter and says, you guys are getting it wrong. You guys are getting it wrong. And they're getting it wrong in another dimension of what this supper is meant to be. They're getting it wrong in that they're missing. There is a fundamentally, fundamentally corporate nature to this supper that we share. It's not just about you and Jesus dying for your sins. It's about us and Jesus dying for our sins. It's not just about his body for you, his blood for you. It's about his body for us, his blood for us. We are saved by him together. There's something going on between me and God here, but there's something going on between all of us here. And if we miss that, we get the whole thing completely wrong. Let's look at the passage in some detail. It won't take us long with that background now. In uh, chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, verse 17, Paul says there is abuse at the Lord's Supper. That's pretty harsh. Imagining an apostle coming into your church, seeing you take the bread and wine and saying, there's abuse going on here. This is not how it should be. There is no praise from the apostle. There's no praise from the apostle for sharing in the bread and wine. You think this is exactly what we're meant to do? Yes, but not the way you're doing it. There is no praise for you here. And the big problem we see in verse 18 in the Corinthian church is there are divisions in the church at this point. The church is divided. 
The Lord's Supper is shared, but people are divided. And uh, that, that's just a horrible, ironic, terrible state of affairs. Uh, did you notice the way this is uh, written in verse 18? When you come together, there are divisions. That's contrary. You come together and you're divided. This is not how it should be. When you come together, you should be one, not come together and be divided. And in God's economy, verse 19, these divisions actually show something pretty stark about the church, that some of you are not right with God. The way you're conducting yourselves, there are some of you who do not have God's approval. And this behaviour, this division at the Lord's Supper proves it. What you're doing is so wrong, in fact, verse 20, this is stark, it's not the Lord's Supper. It's not the Lord's Supper. So yeah, you come together in church. You eat bread, you eat wine, but I tell you what, it's not the Lord's Supper. It's not the Lord's Supper because these divisions among you actually betray the fact that your heart is not where it needs to be. And not where it needs to be, again, in relation to one another, which is a fundamental part of this uh, this uh, spiritual symbolic meal. What's going on in detail? Well, verses 21 and 22 tell us. Uh, when, you go, uh, when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in, or you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. What's going on? People are coming together. Remember, it's house church. Uh, they're having the Lord's Supper is shared as part of a meal. So they might have like a proper lunch, a proper meal together, and this is where they celebrate the Lord's Supper as part of this, like Jesus did with his disciples over the, Lord's, uh, over the uh, Last Supper. It was part of the Passover meal but they're doing it separately. So it seems as though there's little clicks. There'll be the high table of the people who have means, and what are they doing? They're eating, they're getting full bellies, they're even getting drunk on all the wine they've got, and then there's the other people who don't have the same kind of uh, money to buy this sort of meal, this kind of spread, and they're going hungry. Uh, they're going without. Uh, and it's not just that, it's not just that Oh, this, isn't, this is bad sharing. You know, this is pretty rude. You guys have got everything. These guys have got nothing. Surely you should share. It's partly that, but it's also what flows from that. What does he say in verse 22? It's humiliating. It's humiliating for the people who have less. They sit there and they feel like they are second-class citizens in the house of God. They're humiliated as they look at people on the top table with everything, and they just can't and don't and are excluded and not welcomed. They're humiliated by this. And what this makes plain to Paul is that the Corinthians think that in church there are classes of people. There are classes of people. There's this group of people and that group of people and this group of people. There are different cliques, different classes. There's the haves, the haves nots, and that's part of how church should be. This is not only cruel, it's contrary to the gospel. It's plain contrary to the gospel. The gospel says, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ says, we all stand before God because of his grace to us in Jesus. Not because we belong to a particular clique or social set. Not because we have more than someone else. We're not excluded because we have less than someone else. 
It's actually nothing to do with us. It's all to do with him. The great leveler is we all come before Jesus poor and we are made rich by his blessings. But when you have an elite, an in-group, a group of haves compared to the have-nots, what you're saying is, no, no, there's a difference between us. There's a difference between us. Now, of course, the reality is there is a difference between lots of Christians. There are some Christians who have more money, more means. There are some who have less. You can't pretend that's not true. Of course that's true. And Paul's not saying that's not true. He'll actually say you can go and eat and enjoy your things in your own homes. What Paul's saying is the one time when we get rid of that difference, the one time when that gets erased, when we're leveled, is when we have the Lord's Supper. That's the one time, if there's any time, when we wipe that distinction away. It's this moment, this great leveler, this reminder of the gospel, when we take all those differences out. The Lord's table is different. It's not just a reminder of salvation past, it's a glimpse of the holy banquet that we'll share with Jesus in eternity, when we truly will all be leveled out and on an equal footing. The Lord's Supper is when we anticipate that, when we prepare ourselves with that. And just as God welcomes everyone who repents and believes in the Lord Jesus, his people should welcome everyone together at those times when we particularly sit down and remember our salvation in Christ, the Lord's Supper, that key moment that says we're all in this together. Verses uh, 23 to 26 actually emphasize this. And um, you don't quite pick it up in the English Bibles because uh, in English we don't have a separate word for you in the singular and you in the plural. We do in Australian, of course. We've got use or use all. Um, for some reason, the, these Bible translators aren't up on modern Australian. But, uh, but all of the language in verses 23 to 26 is in the plural in the plural, and Paul's underscoring the point. Uh, let me read it to you. I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you all. Right? That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you all. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the blood of the new, this, is the, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. All of you do this when you drink of it in remembrance of me. For whenever you all eat this bread and you all drink this cup, you all proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When you do this together, you are partaking in the promises of the gospel. And even more than that, notice there in verse 26, you're proclaiming the gospel. The world is seeing the gospel when you do it together. It's a proclamatory act, actually, having the bread and the wine. It makes a statement to anyone who happens to be watching because it's a reminder of how God works in all of his people equally, without distinction. If Christian people can't come together and share fellowship over the Lord's Supper, if they can't have table fellowship, what does that say about the gospel? What does it say about the gospel? Paul says it's, it says that the gospel is not being declared. If you are dividing at the point of eating the Lord's Supper, 
then you're not proclaiming the gospel because the gospel levels us all out and this is the great symbol of it. If you have divisions among you, among the Lord's Supper, then it's not the Lord's Supper. It's just some odd group of people with strange beliefs who happen to be eating in a similar place and they have all the same standard subdivisions and cliques of every other community in human society. They still have the wealthy people who indulge themselves and the poor who miss out, just like every other community in human society. The gospel doesn't make any difference. That's the message. Gets even starker, doesn't it? Verse 27. It's not only not the Lord's Supper when they do it wrong, it's actually a meal of condemnation. If you eat the bread or drink the cup in an unworthy manner, that is, in a way that is not worthy of the gospel, which is for all of us, then you will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Better not to take it. Better not to take it than to take it in a hollowed out, ritualistic, selfish, non-inclusive way. Better not to take it. Don't think participation is in and of itself what makes you right with God. When you walk up to take that bread and to take that wine, think about how is my unity with my Christian sisters and brothers? And if it's not there, don't take it because you're making a mockery of it, Paul says to the Corinthians. Well, what's the solution then? What's the solution to the situation and, and what might we have here for us? Verses 28 to 34 give us the solution. It's a pretty simple solution, actually. Uh, three quick things, uh, and the main thing is the first thing. Examine yourself. Check out what's going on in your heart. Verses 28 through to 32, uh, he makes this point strongly. Examine yourself before you eat of the bread and drink of the cup. If you don't eat, uh, those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, and there I think he's playing on the words by the body of Christ, I think he means the people of the church, Christian brothers and sisters. If you don't, then again you drink judgment on yourself and that judgment is severe. So here's what it really means uh, for them and I think for us. Is coming to the Lord's table, taking the bread and wine, and actually let's just pull back a bit and say, is church generally, because remember, for the Corinthians, this was all mixed in together. Church was in the home, it was over a meal, bread and wine was part of that. Uh, is this all about you? Is it all about you and what God has done for you? Or is it all about you and the others who meet with you being brought together by Jesus? Are you at church because this is good for me? I enjoy this. this. This meets my spiritual need. Or I'm going through the motions, which I think is checking the boxes. Or is it I'm doing this with all my sisters and brothers in a deep unity that we share because together we've been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb? Do you and will you welcome anyone else in the room as your sister and brother? Will you do that without gravitating towards the people who you would gravitate towards if they weren't Christian anyway? 
or if this was not church? That is, uh, do you look at the room when it's time to take the Lord's Supper and think, here are my sisters and brothers all together and not say, these are my sisters and brothers all together, but this is really my special set who I actually like hanging out with. No, that would be the Corinthian problem. Here's my special set who I get pleasure out of being with and the others, they can do their thing, but I'm not really interested in them. Or do you see everyone as Jesus sees them? His precious children bought with his blood. We need to do this before we take the Lord's Supper so that we don't take it wrong-heartedly. If not, we risk being under God's judgment and making a mockery of it. Now, it's kind of uncomfortable, but this is actually a gift. This is a gift of God's discipline, these verses say. It's a gift of God's discipline, and it helps us because if we self-examine and we ask ourselves this and we, we remind ourselves that we're all in this together, we're growing ourselves into who we're meant to be. We are becoming the very people God wants us to be, a family, a family with all the weird uncles and aunts and the ratty cousins and the kind of awkward siblings, but nonetheless bonded by blood, the blood of Christ that we share together. We're a family. I actually think this is one reason we should have the Lord's Supper regularly. I'm not sure what your practice is here at this church, so this is not a comment about you, but I'm a fan for churches having the Lord's Supper really frequently, maybe even every week, if it makes us stop and self-examine and remind ourselves that we are a family every single week, bonded by the blood of Jesus every single week. That's a good reminder to have, isn't it? So that's the first thing to do is self-examine. The second thing to do, of course, is just to eat together. It's simple and obvious, but eat together. Uh, Verse 33, my brothers and sisters, when you gather together to eat, you should all eat together. So for the Corinthians, this is quite simple. Don't have the high table, don't have the low table. All eat together, share together. It's simple, it's obvious, but it's gotta be standard practice. And then the last thing is not to make the Lord's Supper really about feeding our tummies, but about feeding our spirit, about feeding our soul. If you're hungry, verse 34 says, then eat something at home. This is not actually about you indulging in a nice meal for your taste buds and for your tummy. That's not really what's going on. Do that at home. Uh, When you meet together, let's not have that in the room leading to potential judgment between the haves and the have-nots. Uh, That's not what's going on here. Let's focus more on eating bread and wine together as a reminder of what Jesus has done rather than as something to fill our stomachs. Now I think, and I'll just finish up with this, we've probably lost something in the way we do the Lord's Supper and it's probably actually because we're following what Paul has said here. That is, uh, we do tend now to largely eat at home and not come to church for a meal, although I love that you're having lunch after, that's fantastic. Uh, But we have tended to separate the Lord's Supper from eating together. That's tended to be what we've done, and again, we're following this so we don't fall in the same trap, I think, as the Corinthians. But we've lost something in separating the Lord's Supper from a meal that we share communally. Recent research has shown that in the ancient world, in the first century, the the Roman world, the Mediterranean world, the world of the Corinthians, it was not uncommon for different community groups to get together in public spaces, perhaps a hall, something like this, 
and to share common meals together. And a really uh, standard meal that they would have would be just bread and wine. Not just Christians, not just Jewish people, but just different groups in the community would get together in halls and eat bread and wine. That was just a simple, standard meal. People drank more wine in those days because it's a way of keeping the water uh, pure, uh, the alcohol will kill the bugs. Uh, may not have been fine South Australian red, might not have been that strong. It was just a standard table drink and bread is bread, a pretty simple staple. So community groups would come together for a simple staple meal, bit of bread, bit of wine. And as much as Paul is calling the Corinthians to stand out from the world, he's actually also picking up on something they do together. He's saying when you have the Lord's Supper, it should be like this basic community meal. Come together, eat something simple, bread, wine, nothing fancy. But what will distinguish you from the world is that you will do it together. You will see in the bread and the wine the body and blood of Jesus, which the world doesn't see. You will recognise you're all in the same position before Jesus' cross, even if you're in different positions in the rest of life. When you come together, rich and poor alike will be eating at the same table. The nice thing about this as well, I think, is it, it helps us see that sometimes we force a distinction between the physical and the spiritual that I don't think really captures what the Bible always says. Sometimes we think of the, the physical world and the spiritual world and you can kind of keep them separate and the Bible says, no, not really. The, the way you live in the material physical world is a manifestation of spiritual realities. It's kind of, you know quite good to realize that because how can you be spiritual while marginalizing and embarrassing someone else for whom Jesus died? You can't say, well, I'm eating bread and wine. It's very spiritual while I reject others of God's people. Now, we need to make the meal what Jesus has done for us as a group. That's how it works. Let me paint a picture for you. Imagine this. Imagine a church with a whole lot of different people in it. Uh, imagine them are some, uh, among them are some pretty well-off families from perhaps the eastern suburbs, perhaps they have a swimming pool, perhaps they have BMW, perhaps they have Mercedes-Benz, they have a wine collection, they holiday at resorts. But imagine that also among them are some ex-cons. Imagine there are some longer-term unemployed people, some mentally ill folks, some people who are just low-paid factory workers. And they decide this church with rich and poor, let's have a meal together. Let's have a community meal together. So this is what they do. They think, well, why don't we all pitch in and we'll have a great feed if we all pitch in. But the poorer folks think, well, it's easy for you to say pitch in. I've got to count every penny if I'm going to make rent this week. So that's not really fair. So you say, well, I know, let's just get the rich people to splash out and, and provide for everyone. They can afford it. But then the poorer folk feel embarrassed, like, well, that's just demeaning, right? We're coming here as charity cases. So what's the solution? Let's have a community meal. Let's just make it simple. Let's just have bread, maybe a few dips, maybe a bit of Vegemite, something simple. And let's just have a cheap cask of wine or maybe just water. 
Let's just get out trestle tables in the church hall. It's completely adequate as a meal, right? You can live on that for one meal. But what's more important is the focus now is not on the food. The focus is on all of us coming together. And actually, as we eat this simple meal together, we can remember, hey, here's the bread. Here's the wine. We're together because of Jesus. We're together because he died for us. It reminds us, doesn't it, that, that way back in ancient Israel, the unleavened bread and the blood of the lamb saved his people from their slavery. The body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus saves us from our sin. That's what brings us all here together. That's what our life's about. That's what we should be doing as sisters and brothers, week in, week out, as we live out the gospel and we capture it in the meal that Jesus left for us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus, his death and resurrection, and the fact that we remember these things as we eat the bread and drink the wine. But Lord, help us not just think that eating the bread or drinking the wine is enough in itself. Help us not just think that Jesus died for me as an individual, but help us realize, Lord, that this is the great leveler. This is the great leveler. We all eat bread, we all eat wine. We are all one in Christ. And uh, this symbol of our salvation should also be a powerful symbol of our unity. May it be so for us. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.